Wilfred Emmanuel Jones, it is a great pleasure to have you on the 20 Questions with podcast. You are the self-styled black farmer, and I want to hear your story. So my first question to you is this, how did you become the black farmer? Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure being on your your podcast, and I'm looking forward to our chat. How did I become the black farmer? Hopefully, what you will discover from our conversation is that my story is that of audacity. I'm a great believer that actually you can achieve anything you want in life if you have the audacity to dream and dream big. The greatest restrictions that people have in life is the restrictions they place on themselves. And for me, my story is that, you know, I was born in Jamaica. I'm of the Windrush generation. I was born in a place called um, Frankfield Clarendon. And you all know the story. People like my parents came to this country in the 50s. What happened back then is that they left their children behind to be brought up by relatives. And then they asked for me and my sister to be then sent over once they've established themselves. And I was brought up in a place called Small Heath in Birmingham. And even to this day, the mention of the word Small Heath sends shivers through my spine because I fucking hated the place. It was a pretty awful place. It's... um, It's one of those miserable, classic social dustbin heaps. And I'd like you to picture the scene. I'm from a family of 11. There's 11 of us living in a two up, two down terrace house. There was three to a bed. I was often very, very, very hungry. When I used to go shopping with my mother, I remember she used to try and feed one, take one chicken to feed the whole family of 11. And it wasn't the sort of chickens you now get at Tesco's. These are the old boiler chicken where you've got to, cooked for several days for it to tenderize. And so as a way of supplementing the family income, my father had an allotment and it was my job as the oldest boy to look after this allotment. And I can remember, and when I go and do talks around the schools, I really emphasize this bit. I can remember at the age of 11, I loved being on this allotment so much that I made myself a promise that one day I would like to own my own farm. And I didn't know how I was going to do it, but it was a dream that I'd lodged into the back of my mind. And then every single thing I subsequently did in my life was to one day get into a position to to buy my farm. And if you want to hear the story, I'd tell you. But it took me nearly 30 years to get into a position to to buy a farm. But um, what I always say to people is that actually you have to have the audacity to dream big. Because, you know, if I went and told any of my family and friends back then that I wanted to own a farm, they would have thought I was nuts. And this guy was, you know, thinking above his station and that this guy is a dreamer. But that is just one of the, that that was the start of my audacious journey in life. What do you say to those who don't have audacity or worry that they might not have it? Well, it's not necessarily their fault because, you know, we, the, the, the thing that I love, about life is that if you take um i think they did some psychological experiments is that if you go into a, a, a group of kids at the age of three for example and you say who's the best at football they'll all put their hands up because they, they they audaciously believe they could do anything what then happens by the time they're seven they've been conditioned by parents by society about actually some form of hierarchy so the whole form of how we parent our children our education actually beats out audacity for um, young people to learn how to be how to survive and therefore if you want to do right by your 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 children 
and you've got a child I understand called Wilfred if you want to do it right by Wilfred is that you have to actually um allow audacity and that comes through creativity you know the more crazy the idea the more creative it is the better it is and the better it's going to prepare that child for the sort of things that um, is going that can happen in life, so it's a different form of parenting. The fact that you have styled yourself as the black farmer suggests to me that there aren't very many black farmers around. If I'm right in that, why do you think that is? Well, the reason I styled myself the black farmer again was a pretty audacious thing to do, and I uh, just to give you an example of how that story came about. When I eventually bought my farm, and my farm is down on the Devon Cornwall border near a place called Launceston, you know, I can remember telling all my family and friends that I'm going to, you know, buy this farm. All my friends in London would go, boy, you know, don't they lynch black people down there? The idea of a black guy having a farm in that part of the world was, whoa. And then all the white people thought, shit, you know, what is a black guy doing coming down to be a farm? Here's an interesting story for you. I can remember when I put up my first polytunnel, Somebody called the police out because they thought it was a cover for growing ganja. So when you're trying to change things, it actually it sends confusion around people because it doesn't sort of fit into the stereotype. And what I've always sort of felt is that I'm an outsider. I'm a classic outsider. And I think that outsiders see opportunities. So when I bought this farm, I just thought, actually, there's this massive gap between urban and rural Britain. There's an opportunity here to create a brand and do something different. And I thought, right, you know what? I'm going to create a brand that's going to try and bridge the gap. And I want it, again, to be audacious. And I don't want it to be an ethnic brand, because, again, if you're Black, people are going to think that actually all you could do is do things that are going to be representative of Black people. I thought, I want something really mainstream. And I thought, well, what could it be that's mainstream? So the sausage. Everybody likes a sausage. What is the gap? The gap at the time was that... One in a hundred people had some sort of wheat intolerance. So I thought, well, I'm going to do a, a gluten-free sausage. I managed to find somebody who helped me uh, manufacture the products. And then the next thing to do was to come up with a brand name. And I was scratching my head thinking, what the hell am I going to call this brand? And then one day it came to me. All of my next door neighbors used to call me the Black Farmer. And I thought, shit, you know, it's a pretty good brand name. Not only is it a really good brand name, but it's got an edge to it. You know, in our society where people are really, really nervous about what is the right sort of language to use when you're referring to people of colour, that was going to be really in your face. Now, I think I'm a pretty courageous guy, but even I thought, you know what, Wilfred, you better go and get this tested. So I did all the classic research. And this is an important lesson for anybody listening to this podcast, because the research came back and says, do not call it the black farmer because people will be upset. They'll be offended. And at the time, it did cause a bit of a stir. But the lesson is this. Research will tell you what people were thinking yesterday accurately. Research will tell you what people are thinking today accurately. But research cannot tell you what people are thinking tomorrow. That's why you've got to go with your convictions and then other people would follow. And if you're creating a brand in order to, to get attention, you've got to put your neck out there. I can remember people complaining to the at the time they were called the the race of equality because a, as well as the sausages i had um black farmer bacon and part of our strap lines you know when you have awful bacon you got that sort of white sort of slimy bit and i just put as a, t a tagline no white bits and somebody complained to the racial equality thinking i was being sort of racist because against sort of white people so 
And then also a lot of black people in business have felt that they have to hide their blackness in order to be accepted by the mainstream. The whole strategy was to be in your face. And I, I you know, when, when I've been around and I've done shows, you know, like these big counter shows you can imagine. And I'm listening, I remember once listening to a conversation where this woman's having a conversation with a friend of hers in the mobile and there's another friend with her. And they're obviously trying, she's trying to give her directions of where to meet her. And she's going, I'm just outside the black farmer. And her friend nudges her and says, you can't say that, you know, because in that part of the world, um, saying coloured, it seemed to be more respectful than black. So by putting black out there, it's in your face. It's it's unapologetic. And also it, it begs the question, well, why aren't there any black farmers? I would not have been able to call this brand a black farmer if we had a lot of black farmers. It's because actually it's not only trying to create a brand, but also to start to ask that question. Now, the reason why there isn't any black farmers in this country, and actually today is a really good day to discuss the subject because Rishi Sunak has just announced this big scheme that he's going to do to farmers. But the reasons why farming really needs a revolution is that if you're from a non-traditional farming background, the chances of you getting access to land is impossible because most of these farmers have their land handed down generation and generation. If you have land, you have power. You could get you could get borrowings from the bank. You have real power, and we're not going to bring about change unless people from non-traditional background could get access to, to more land. Now there is a way to do this because I'm not trying to say that people should give up their land, but there's a lot of land owned by big institutions like the Church of England owns a shitload of land, the National Trust owns a, a shitload of land, and those bastards what they do is all they do is lease the lands out to the same traditional families. And I'm saying to those big institutions, actually, part of your social responsibility is that you should be saying to your land agents, 10% of the land that we own should be, you've got to go out there, find people from non-traditional farming backgrounds, be that from diverse communities, be from new farming, and say to, and, lo and actually lease land to those people because the industry needs new blood. And if it doesn't, it's just going to continue failing because these people have been able to sit on their backsides for years. Because, you know, what a lot of people don't know is that um, if you own land, you get paid like a like a dole money. You know, I get paid money just for owning land, you know. And so farmers have got lazy. Thankfully, the government is scrapping that scheme now where actually you've got to basically stand on your own two feet. But don't feel sorry for farmers because they've had a bloody an easy ride for a very, very long time. And yeah, you want to tell you something. You see, when you get me on the subject, you can't stop me because I just think there's so much injustice in there. Wilfred, the Church of England and the National Trust are not here to put their side of the story. Yeah, but don't don't you go, please. Don't be journalistic with me now. It's a truth. They've got to get their act together. Do you think by calling yourself a black farmer, you are encouraging other black people and other minorities to become farmers if they sh should so wish? Or do you think you might be sending out the message that this is really unusual and there's only one of us sort of thing? I'm sending out the message that this is only it's unusual. And there's only one of us, but the whole food and farming industry is the least diverse industry in this country. And they haven't had the sort of scrutiny that other industries have had. It is it is appalling. And so for people from diverse background, A, they find out that is a fact. B, is to understand that their spending power could bring about change. In the food and farming industry, the, the reasons why we've seen change is not because of the industries, because the consumer 
has demanded those changes. You know, just to give you an example, I am, for example, I'm the only black farmer. I'm the only, I think I was talking to one of the big supermarkets and I'm the only black supplier into them. You know, black suppliers do not exist in the whole food chain. And you think to myself, what black people should be saying is that shit, I'm spending all my money here with you guys. You know, what are you doing in order to give us opportunities and actually that's the sort of stuff that I'm doing. The conversations that I'm having um, with retailers, I, I run schemes to try and get people from diverse backgrounds into farming because it's it's unjust. It's not it's not good. One of the things that pisses me off is that you know people celebrate the likes of you know the 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 Lidl's and the Aldi's and all these um, places that actually a lot of people from diverse communities spend their money in. But then if you go and ask those people, actually, what is your diversity um, record like? What are you doing? And you will find that those people are seriously in, in wanting for, for not doing their bit. And so by just by registering that, by, by, by telling people from diverse background, look, you have a lot of power and these people are not doing right by you. I have a voice to do that because I know what's going on, because I understand the food chain. And it's really, really difficult if you're starting up to get access into that sort of food chain. I could then demand some sort of change. OK, so again, I've got my journalist hat on. Right, go on, you say your bit. Go on, let them feel happy. <laughs> Little and Aldi are not here to put their side of the story. Go on, let them feel better. What I want to ask you, though, is when you look at race, are you in favour of quotas? Are you in favour of positive discrimination where do you stand on these things i'm not in favor of positive discrimination but i'm in i'm in favor of people in power giving opportunity every single thing that i've achieved in my life somebody has gone out of their way to give me an opportunity you know one of the stories i'd like to tell you is that you know when i i'm a boy that left school without any qualifications i'm dyslexic and not very well educated and as as well as having a dream of buying my own farm, I had a dream of um, joining the BBC to be a documentary maker. And again, I can remember all my family and friends thinking, this guy is fucking off his rocker, actually, because the BBC at the time is very, very much full of the Oxbridge types. And they thought, how in God's name does he think he's going to get into TV? So I did all the classic things like, you know, writing or ringing people. Nobody would take my phone calls. At the time, there's a place called BBC Pebble Mill. And I, you know, went up to the security guards and, I, and they used to have manual barriers letting people in and out of the buildings. And I went and I said to them, look, can I help you lift these barriers to let people in and out of the building for free? So they just thought, well, you know, it saves us having to get out of this bloody hut to do it. So I did that for months. From there, I then met the cleaners who were cleaning the offices. So I'd ask them, can I come and help clean the offices? And they said yes. And then this happened. I met a guy, and I remember his name to this guy. His name was Jock Gallagher. He was a senior exec at the BBC Pebble Mill. And I said to him, Look, I really want to get into television and all that. And he said, come to his office. And he spoke to me for about an hour. And he says, look, you are not the type of person that we employ in television because you don't have the education and you've got a bit of an attitude problem. And he said, but look, I'm going to take a punt with you. I'm going to give you a job as a runner for three months and to see what happens. Now, that man having the courage to give me that break, then started up a long career in television. So one of the things I will say to people is find your guardian angels. 
find the people who are going to go out of their way to make things happen. So he was one, another guy, Peter Basilgett, when all the sort of conventional types wanted to sack me because I didn't fit the mold, he was my sort of protector. And the thing about positive discrimination, as, as you call it, it's not about positive discrimination, it's about people in power understanding they have a responsibility to give opportunity. And that's what we need to do. Is it? So people who are senior in business, they should be thinking, actually, part of my social duty is to actually give opportunities so those a bit more disadvantaged. Don't send them to your personnel department, to your human resources department, sort of, that you personally do something. Because not only does that send a fantastic message to the individuals, but to the rest of society. And that's what I would like to see imprinted in very senior people's mind, is that I'm not going to get promoted. I'm not going to make it unless I could demonstrate that this is the sort of something that I am tangibly doing that's making a difference. That's how you bring about change, not by quotas. When you started out in telly, were you thinking, I want to have a career in television? Or were you thinking, I want to work in TV so I can eventually raise the funds to buy my farm? Well, I wanted to work in television because I used to love documentaries. They make things that important. I wanted to... Uh, uh, I suddenly realized working in television is pretty glamorous, but there's no goddamn money in it. And therefore, you know, after a, a number of years there, I just thought, boy, you're going to have to leave the BBC because if you want to buy this farm, you're going to have to go and do your own thing to earn some serious money to be able to, to, to buy your farm. So it was the glamour of it that I wanted, you know, to be able to go around, you know, and I traveled the world making um, programs. In fact, one of my claim to fame is that, People like Gordon Ramsay, James Martin, I gave them their first break in television. It was my job to break them in. Peter Basilgett gave that responsibility to me because these chefs were hard bastards and they, the Oxbridge types were intimidated by them. And uh, because I was from the same side of the street as they were, as it were, we spoke the same, sort of the same language, so I was not intimidated by them. So it was really, um, it, it was a good life, but I just realised pretty uh, after a while that actually you're going to have to go and earn money to buy this farm. So how did you make that money? I then left the BBC and then I created my own food and drink marketing agency. So because my experience, because, you know, I, I, I worked as a chef, then got into television, making food programs. So my experience was all around food. So I thought, actually, what I should do is go and actually create my own food and drink marketing agency. So I launched brands like Lloyd Gross and Sources, um, Kettle Chips, Cobra Beer. These are big big established bands but back in the day they were challenger brands they were you know they're, they're a bit like me about somebody trying to punch above their weight trying to you know make a sort of statement and so they needed somebody with the same sort of attitude working for them you know they paid shit money but actually somebody that's prepared to work hard for them so that's how I eventually managed to earn enough money to then buy my farm down in Devon 15 years it took me. Have you actually done any farming, Wilfred? I'm not a hands-on farmer, and I wouldn't... I can remember the first lot of sheep that I bought, went to the market, and actually did the bidding um, <clears throat> for them, got them home. So in terms of hands-on, that was the first... And, and some cattle. I bought some Red Devon cattle. So my farm, for example, it's, it's grassland, basically. It, it ain't fit for anything else but for grazing, so you'll either graze cows or um, cattle on it. And also you have to winter them. And I basically, they don't winter on my land. They will winter on my next door neighbor's land. So the only hands-on farming that I've done is gone to the auctions to bid, which is pretty exciting, and to buy them. But in terms of the day-to-day -day stuff, no, that's done by my next door neighbor. 
that actually we have it. He you know, he could have access to some of my land whilst he looks after it. That's the arrangement that they're hand. So I'm not a hands-on farmer at all. What I say is this, is that every day I spend on my farm, I'm not doing my job. I'm not doing what I'm meant to be doing. I'm meant to be out there really talking about all of this. Where can we actually buy your produce? You could buy my produce in all of the supermarkets. And, you know, for example, you know, we are one of the few brands in Marks and Spencers where you could buy black farmer produce. And also, I've just launched... What do you mean you're one of the few brands in Marks and Spencers? Marks and Spencers don't list brands. They're all own label. And so, you know, to to have it for a brand to be in Marks and Spencers, you know, you've got to be ticking a few boxes to be able to be doing that. We're in all of the supermarkets. And it was, you know, to get into the supermarkets was a pretty tough journey because... You know, everything people say about the supermarkets is right. You know, they're pretty tough and they're bastards, basically. And you see, one of the things about my brand is that I was lucky that when I launched it, it was just at the the start of the, the social media re- revolution. Um, Facebook had just started. Because before then, if you were a brand and you wanted to get people's attention, you had to go through the gatekeepers, i.e. magazines, TV, etc. So you had to have a lot of money. What social media did was that it allowed you to have direct access to your to your consumers. Because when I went to the supermarkets with my sausages to get enlisted, every one of them said no. Again, I had buyers saying they couldn't understand it. Buyers saying to me, sausages? Why is the black guy doing sausages? Are these sausages for black people? They just couldn't get it. And so I knew then that the only people that the supermarkets fear are the consumers. And so what I decided to do was to go around the whole country and do a big sampling program. And, you know, you you got to be a bit of a maverick, basically, because um, I did a bit of sampling. And at the same time, I put all of the buyers' names, telephone numbers, email addresses on my website, which are not meant to do, basically, because they like to be sort of hidden away, put their names, all that there. And then when people love the product, I says, look, just do me a favor. Just go onto my website and email the buyers and say, why aren't you listing these products? And as God is my witness, that's how I got listed. They got inundated and inundated with people. They even come up to me and said, actually, now that you're listed, can you take me off your website? I says, no, it's going to stay up there. So, you know, so many stories I, I could tell you about actually the brutal fights that I've had with the retailers just to get um, get a foot in the door. Do you like the countryside? I love it. I absolutely love it. In fact, you're talking to me from Chippenham. So at the moment, I've got three places. I've got my um, a flat here in Chippenham. I've got my place in London, and then I've got my farm down in Devon. And I'm down here because I have a fulfillment centre in, in Chippenham. And just getting out of London, because I've been crammed there for bloody weeks at, with the, with my shop, my farm shop there, it just feels as though, oh, you know, it brings me back to that feeling that I had as an 11-year-old kid, basically, you know, some tranquil sort of peaceful space. What do you mean by your fulfillment centre? So if you go online on our website and you buy Black Farmer's produce, it will be sent anywhere around the country and it comes from Chippenham. So we'll pack it up there, box it up and get a lovely box. I'll have to send you one, actually. Yeah, As an apology for being late, I'll send you a Black Farmer box. That will be good. That will, that will make you feel better, won't it? And your wife and kid who have had to go out, I'll send them a nice Black Farmer box. How about instead of that, I don't want to take your boxes off you for free. How about instead of that, I come down and visit you on the farm? Actually, you could come in, but not only that, you could stay. Actually, this is even better. We have a barn called Scarlet's Barn that sleeps four, and you could come and stay there. How about that? That's even better. This is excellent news, Wilfred. I'm very excited. 
it's really it's a, and, and it's on a really beautiful spot you'll go there and you think wow this boy is the luckiest boy in the world you know so yes you could do that i saw a video actually of what seemed to be your farm on instagram and it did look beautiful now when i say to you the countryside is racist i'm not saying i'm saying the countryside is racist but we have had headlines recently suggesting it haven't we and i wonder what your reaction to that is well that's about perception you know the, the big problem that we have is if you spoke to a lot of black people in london you know, in urban britain and you said, is the countryside racist they would say yes now that ain't based on actually the, um they've had experience of that that's based on things they've heard and the the, the assumption for a person that has had experience of both urban Britain and rural Britain, I would say urban Britain is way, way, way more um, racist than um, than um, than rural Britain. I'll give you an example. You know, the amount of times I've been into posh offices, even now, even now, posh offices, and I regard myself as a posh black guy, and people will say to me, you know, what are you here to pick up? That It happens to me all the time. What are you here to pick up? And so that happened to me, you know, this goes to show what the world hasn't changed much. Now, where I'm in London is, a, you know, it's a posh part of London. And I was, um, you know, in, in Battersea. And I was sitting outside in my nice big posh car, right outside the front. And suddenly, a woman got into the back of my car saying, whatever it was, something please. And she, she assumed that I was a driver. I was so, I was so shocked. I was so shocked. So... Because I was yeah. going to ask you, I mean, it's an obvious follow-up question, isn't it? But when you're in one of these offices and someone says, what are you here to collect? Well, I've got a friend who turns up at the cricket to go and watch a game of cricket with me. And they are, they think that she's she's actually come to do the catering, right? She's a woman yeah. of colour. Is shock the only thing that makes you feel? Disgust? Outrage? Upset? How You know, I'm half Jewish and people don't know that I'm Jewish unless I tell them. I spent some of my life worrying or wondering when 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 an anti-Semitic remark might be made, and that might be at a dinner party, or you don't know when it's going to come at you because people don't know that you're Jewish. In your case, it's slightly different. You are obviously a black man, and, yeah. and, this and so, you have, so you have a choice. So you should be like, how does it make you feel? So, for some people, what they try and do is they. <clears throat> there's a book that I've written. Actually, I'm going to plug my book here. There's a book that I've written called Jeopardy: The Danger of Playing It Safe. And that for people, a lot of people, they want to survive. And the way to survive is to belong. And to belong is to actually acquire all the rules that belonging requires. So, you know, a lot of people put their heads down and say, right, to be accepted, I'm going to have to behave like this. What I've always done is that I've realized that I'm an outsider and there's a power in being an outsider because... Being an outsider, I mean, you could play by your own rules. I, I'm I'm probably more privileged than you are because they would automatically be ex an expectation about you. With me, because I'm black, they don't have the same sort of expectation or the expectation is pretty low. That gives me an advantage. And that is what I use. And so <clears throat> I just know that if I'm going into that sort of situation that, you know, these people don't know that I'm more privileged than they are i always say to my children who are i said you are you two are more privileged than white privilege they are seriously sort of privileged now it's about how do you go about making the change you either become a victim i.e giving the people the power or you are like me you're absolutely overt so i'm i'm overt about my blackness without being militant and actually black and actually geared towards the mainstream and is constantly opening their eyes 
and also you know making them challenge their their assumptions that is what i that's what that is my purpose as it were i mean if you go to my farm shop in brixton for example you're going to think, what the fuck is this? You know, it's like, it is, you know, it's deliberate. It's like walking to a spa. It's like wa walking into a different world. It's changing assumptions. So if you want to change the world, that's what you need to do. And that's what I enjoy doing. Do you think we have changed for the better in this country over the course of your lifetime? Or do you think that we're now starting to see racism reemerge, people finding it socially ac acceptable to be racist in one form or another I mean, how, how much progress do you think we've made well you and i had a conversation about this because when i was saying to you and i think i offended you by saying one of the big problems for black people have been white white liberals okay white liberals um will understand the issues and um there's a big difference between understanding the issues and overtly going out to bring about change and an example of that i would give is that i'm absolutely appalled and amazed how many big cities I would go into, go into a, an office complex and it's just full of white people. There are no black people to be seen. And if you see them, they're either um, doormen or, or, or security guards. Now, if you're a white person in a big, diverse area and you are happy to work in an environment like that and not say anything about it, you're part of the problem. You know, you're not using your power to say, actually, don't you think we should be doing something about this. And so the thing about liberalism is that everybody could understand the theory, but actually, what are you doing to bring about the change? You know, everything I've just said to you is that my opportunities in life are people who have practically done something, wrote convention in order to give me a break. So if as a white liberal, you want to bring about the change, that's what it, it, it requires. Not going in a goddamn march, make you feel better is what can you do in your everyday role that is going to help me make a difference that's what that's when i say yes this person really is trying to help do you enjoy your life i think it's brilliant one of the greatest thing about my life as it were is that some, some 10 years ago i was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia so if you look at my skin you see this vertiligo and um uh, being being um diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia is a death sentence especially the age that i was and the only it's the only possible cure is a stem cell transplant and because i had eight brothers and sisters they thought and you need to get a match to get a, a, a transplant so they went and all of my brothers and sisters they looked at them not one of them was a match they then have a worldwide register where they go and find to try and find a match not one of them was a match there and then luckily, um, the hospital that I was in was a hospital that specialized in my particular type of cancer. And they thought, well, you're going to die anyhow, so we'll try something experimental, which is called a haplo transplant. And luckily, it absolutely worked. Now, every day I look in the mirror, I know that the only reason why I'm alive is because of timing. If I was a few years earlier, the science would not have been there. So I'd be, um, I, 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 I'd be dead. And the thing about touching death, as it were, it helps to get rid of the white noise of living. Our, our lives are full of a lot of shite. And the only time you actually focus down on the things that matter is when you have a sort of scare in your life. And therefore, every single day that I'm alive, I know that, you know, you you know th this is 10 years of life you shouldn't have had so 
all the things that people naturally worry about or be fearful of, I'm not, basically, because it's a bit like I'm here to fulfill my purpose. When I've done that, I would be able to say, actually, you've lived a meaningful life. In 2010, you stood for election as a Conservative Party candidate yeah. in Chipperton. Exactly, yeah, it, it, the place I am now, yes. What made you a Tory, and are you still a Tory? Well, the re actually, the one, one of the reasons I am a Tory and what made me a Tory is that I felt let down by the the system. You know, I, I was brought up in what I'd call a socialist system, and it's back to my thing about white liberalism, where actually, as a boy that was disadvantaged, majorly sort of disadvantaged, the only way that I was able to get out of this disadvantage where other people, like the ones I've I've spoken to about giving me a break, individuals um, giving me a break, giving that opportunity, and then with me running with that opportunity. So I'm a great believer that what you need to do is that you need to empower people, um, empower individuals to give opportunity, to see that actually it's the greatest gift you, you can give, to give opportunity, rather than thinking you have to go to the state, a system, because the moment you do that, it then gets corrupted. There are all these boxes to you've got, you've got to sort of tick. So anywhere where there's a process and, and there's a system, I have always been disadvantaged by it, always been disadvantaged by it, because, you know, there's so many boxes that you've got to tick. And if you don't tick the right boxes, you then miss out of that opp opportunities because it doesn't allow individuality to actually have any part of that sort of process. So I'm a great believer that actually, if you give people the responsibility to do things, they do a better job than um, states, institutions, because you know people like me would mi have always missed out when they are in charge of doing things. I'm looking here at Twitter, or X as it's now called, and it is the Home Secretary James Cleverley's account. And this was from yesterday. So today in Parliament, we've laid an order to ban overseas care workers from bringing dependents. This is just one part of our plan to deliver the biggest ever cut in migration. Curious to know what you make of that, because you said much earlier in this podcast that your parents came over as part of the Windrush generation. And what people would do in those days, I think you said, was to apply subsequently to be able to bring their, their children out. What do you make of this? Well, what I make of this is this, is that you know, I employ people. And, you know, you understand a lot about human nature when you are employing people, right? What we need to do in this country is that we need to do something about the work ethic of um, the host community. There's a lot of people in the host community who actually, their attitude towards work is, is not good at all. And, you know, some people think that getting up in the morning and turning up um, for a job is a day's work. There's a real, real big problem. Now, by um, by bringing people in, you know, I know that if you get somebody from India, from these countries, their, their work ethic is much different. They will work hard. Now, you're not going to fix the problem if that's all you continuously do is to just get people who are already going to be hardworking. What you've also got to do is that you've got to say to your host community, actually, this is what we, this is what is expected. So, for example, I think every student, as part of being a student, like if you went to Australia to stay in the country longer, you have to go and work on a farm. I think you should have exactly the same sort of principle here. 
you part of your right to passage, as it were, is that you got to go and spend X many, many months working on a farm. Part of young people's training is that working, going out and working, doing something with the community is really, really important. We've lost that. I think what has now happened is that we've now got a culture where people think, actually, it's their employer's responsibility to make them happy. You'd be amazed the amount of time I have to spend on people, you know, with nothing to do about their job, which is to do things outside of their job. So we have to make a big cultural change about our attitudes to work. But eventually, you know, in 10, 15 years time, this problem is going to go away. And I'll tell you how this problem is going to go away, because actually the AI technology is going to be so powerful that actually having a job is going to be a luxury going to be an absolute luxury and therefore the people who are going to have that luxury of working are people who are going to understand what working means i've been able to make a number of jobs redundant because ai has already made it a lot more efficient than u- utilizing human beings because the most powerful thing about any business is people and the most challenging things is people and that's why technology is sort of stripping that out. So what we need to recognize is this. All you people sending your kids to university to train to be accountants, barristers, doctors, they are not going to exist. There'll be a time in my lifetime when the nurse will be more important than the doctor. Because all a doctor is is a bloody computer, you know, absorbing all the information and then coming up with a diagnosis. But the nurse is the one that gives you the care, the attention, they're loving all of these sort of intangibles that make a sort of difference. So if I was you, I wouldn't be wasting your money to go and actually train for what I would say were the professions of the old age, because we're going from the skills you needed in the past uh, meant you were able to absorb information, then regurgitate it. Well, computers could do that much quicker. We're going to the conceptual age. It's about those people who are creative, they're comfortable being creative, conceptual, That's what's exciting about the future. While we're talking about the future, how sustainable would you say your farm is? Well, I've only got 30 acres. So, you know, it ain't ain't a a proper farm. To be able to have a proper farm, you need to have at least 100 acres minimum. And even if you have a a minimum uh, 100 acres, that's pretty, you know, that's pretty small. And that actually, in order to survive, a lot of farmers have had to sort of diversify. And so mine is only 30 acres. And um, so basically, in terms of sustainability, it isn't. So all of the produce that I have, it doesn't come from my farm. It comes from, you know, I work with manufacturers, um, farmers around the sort of country. But you can't call yourself the black farmer if you don't have a farm. So that's basically what it's there. So people could uh, could visit. So when you come down and see, you'll be able to see um, what it's like. And then um, farming is meaning something totally, it will mean something totally different. In my farm shop in Brixton, for example, I list products that are grown in vertical farms. You know, that's what's really exciting. In um, my farms in Brixton, my farm shops in Brixton, and there are people growing um, vegetables in Elephant and Castle in shipping containers that are beautiful, that are tasty. That is the future. So the idea that you're going to be doing those stuff on old traditional farmland is not going to exist because one of the big challenges that you have in food and farming is distribution. But if you could grow um, vegetables in elephant car and elephant castle in bloody sea containers, who is not going to be going down that route? Do you think we're going to end up without eating animals? We can get our meat from artificial 
mechanisms in artificial ways. There will come a time when actually eating meat will be seen like smoking, you know? So I am probably of the genera the last generation where actually gorging on meat um, was seen was okay. But we are you you could just see the trend about people moving away from meat. Even in my farm shop, you could see people going towards more sort of vegan stuff or having their protein powder. We are we are shifting away now. That ain't necessarily a bad thing, and anything that was going to help to sort of help the environment with that which that is you know is not a bad thing but that shift is happening and it's happening at a very very fast pace by the way because in the past you see eating meat was a real luxury it was an absolute luxury and so you've got to say to a certain extent we're going back to what was probably um the, the right balance we've only got two questions left how do you relax how do you wind down after a difficult day being an entrepreneur i don't wind down everything about me is you know if, if you're in a hurry relaxing is a luxury but i have some passions one of my great passion is flamenco i really love flamenco and i've got a place in jerez in spain and that's because jerez is the the birthplace of flamenco and what i love about flamenco is it's female passion you know so i don't know if you know the story of flamenco but it's sort of it's the the dance that came from gypsies really so it's a bit like it doesn't matter how tough and how you're suffering in life you know your spirit your spirit could carry you through anything and that's what i sort of love about it so the best sort of flamenco for me are women in their 70s and 80s just dancing that flamenco it's a bit like actually it doesn't matter how i look it doesn't matter what's going on. My spirit could always soar above anything. And that's why I love it. How good a dancer are you yourself? Well, I mean, I can't do flamenco, unfortunately. I just like watching it. But, you know, I still could bust a few moves, you know. I'm sure that on the dance floor, uh, I will, I'll be noticed. Wilfred Emmanuel Jones, it's been a great pleasure having you answer my 20 questions. And I, I should probably say for those companies that you've been critical of, they no doubt have diversity policies that people can look up on their God websites. Sake. <laughs> God's sake, man, Jesus. And yeah. You have a website, as you've been saying. They can find you on Instagram, they can find you on X, Twitter, and they and they can find you. What is your website? So my website is um, theblackfarmer.com. That's pretty easy to find, theblackfarmer.com. It's been a real pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed it. Thank you very much. You didn't say you've enjoyed it, Wilfred. Oh, yeah, 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 yes. I absolutely loved it, basically. You know me, I could yak basically. until the cows come home, yeah. We didn't say, did we, at the beginning, that the reason we met was because we were both on Channel 5 together on Storm Huntley's show, on the Jeremy Vine show, and we yeah. were pitched against each other, weren't we? As, as, as exactly. The, you see, you never know. You see, this is, this is what's really interesting, you see. Pitch people against each other, but we got on really well, you see. So, you know, we could be brothers in a way, couldn't we? Even though we have different sort of politics. I think I'm, we're both trying to do the same thing in our own different ways, really. I'll be at your farm before the summer's out. I'll book you in.